tonight's message, oh, now I'm on. Tonight's message is titled, God's Community in a Hostile World. And the question that I want to get us thinking tonight first is, how would you identify the Asian community in Brisbane? Now, I'm not trying to be culturally insensitive or anything, but there are ways of spotting the Asian community in Brisbane and any other city in the world. Here are a few ways that I came up with. The first thing to know is that Asians love food. There's no question about that. Asian communities always set up a place where all the good food is. And in Brisbane, everyone knows where that is. And if you're wondering, it's not Chinatown. It's Sunnybank, it's Market Square Plaza. That's where all the good stuff is. And that's a result of the Asian community in Brisbane. Another way to spot an Asian community is by the road rules. Now I read this Facebook post this afternoon. It says, I don't believe you, but I know the sticker on your Suzuki says you are the Stig, but the soft toys in the black window and the Pokemon doll hanging off the mirror suggest otherwise. Oh, and you've left your indicator on for the past 500 meters. Again, not trying to be culturally insensitive, but I'm happy to admit that many of my fellow drivers aren't really the best of drivers. Now, this isn't an excuse for bad driving, but I hope you see why they find it so hard. In China, double parking is the norm. Indicating is kind of optional there. Speed limits are just a guide, and zebra crossings only show a place where pedestrians can cross the road. It's pretty hard for these guys to settle into the roads in Brisbane and in any Western country. Other quick ways to spot the Asian community. Shoes always left outside the home. Asians eat funny food like chicken feet, beef tripe and bubble tea. Asians love posing and taking photos of absolutely anything and especially their food before they eat it. So just as there are several ways of spotting an Asian community in Brisbane, there are ways to spot God's community also. So tonight's big question is, how to identify God's community in a hostile world? How can Christians be spotted wherever they are? What are the key qualities in looking out for the people of God? And as we look at this passage in 1 Peter 2 tonight, I think Peter is telling us what God's people should look like. Peter is writing to a group of Christians going through tough times. It's a hostile world for Christ followers. If we remember two weeks ago, uh, chapter 1 verse 6 says that they're going through various trials. And this theme of trials and suffering keeps going throughout this whole book in 1 Peter. And Peter reminds the Christians that they're chosen by God and they're born again in Christ. These Christians don't belong to the world anymore. They're exiles, they're travellers who are waiting for home. They're waiting for God's kingdom to be established. So for us, as we live today in God's community, the situation is exactly the same. If we're born again in Christ, then we don't belong to the world anymore. We belong to God as his chosen people. 
we're different to those around us. Our lives are heading in completely different directions. Our values and our lifestyle should also stand out next to others. And these differences, just like in the time of Peter, they created friction and tension. So Peter writes chapter 2 to tell his readers what God's people should look like. How can we spot God's community in a foreign and hostile world today? The first, and hopefully the most obvious answer from this passage as we read it, is that Jesus is central. Jesus is the most important in God's community. How we view Jesus tells us if we're in or out of God's community. And this is pretty clear from the passage. If we read verse 4, it says, As we come to him, the living stone, In the Old Testament, the image of the stone referred to the idea of the Messiah. So as we come to Jesus, the Messiah, who was, as we continue, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus is God's chosen. He is the Messiah promised through all of Scripture. So if we're part of God's community, we can't reject Jesus. There's no middle ground. If he's God's chosen, then he's got to be important to us too as God's people. The imagery of the stone continues with some more Old Testament references in verses 6 to 8. And Peter pulls the first text from Isaiah 28.16. This passage in Isaiah was just before the exile and it was pretty gloomy in the time. And God pretty much says, you've sinned, you're going to get judged. You're about to get smashed and overrun. And in the middle of all this, there's this passage of hope. In verse 6, it's quoted, But see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, who's the Messiah Jesus. And the one who trusts in him, who trusts in Jesus, will never be put to shame. The cornerstone is the foundation stone or the most important stone in a building. So when we refer to Jesus as the cornerstone, he's the most important part. He's central. He's the foundation of God's saving message. The people's hope through exile and judgment was on this cornerstone, the Messiah Jesus. And Peter says now, remember this passage. Remember what I preached in Acts chapter 4. Well, you know who the cornerstone is. It's Jesus. He's central. He's the most important. He's your hope in this hostile world. Believe him and trust him. Jesus needs to be central in God's community in Peter's time. And Jesus needs to be central in God's community today. The only way we can live in a hostile world is to trust in Jesus who gives us the assurance of eternal life. This might seem like old news for some of you, but I really want us to make sure that Jesus is absolutely in the centre of our lives. If we read on in verse 7 and 8, it tells us that there's only two options. We either believe him or reject him. We either make him the centre and live, or we stumble and fall. We either obey Jesus and his message. 
or we reject Jesus and the gospel. And this is the first point today in how to identify God's people in a hostile world. Jesus is central to God's people. Is he central in your life? Is he central in the life of the church at SDBC? How is Jesus central? Think about how you'd answer that question. For me, when I wake up in the morning, I need to remind myself that I'm living for Jesus today. Through the day, I have to remember the grace that God's shown me through Jesus. How about you? How do you live with Jesus central in your life? In the way that you work during the week? In the ministries that you lead and serve? In your families and in your relationships? The first way to spot God's people is that Jesus is central in their lives. As we move on to the second way to spot God's people, the question I want to ask is, what food or drink do you crave? For some of you, you crave coffee, coffee, and more coffee. <coughs> David. Last week in the Young Adults ad, if you remember it, everyone in the 10.30 service after was craving KFC. There's, there's this feeling when I'm craving some food, I really want to eat it. All through the day, I'd be thinking about it, dreaming about it, and longing for whatever food it is. Peter tells us in the first few verses in this chapter that this is the way we should view growing in Christ. We are to crave spiritual milk so that we can grow in the gospel. Growing in the gospel should be something that God commu- God's community just wants to do. Verse 1, as we read, lists a bunch of things that we're to get rid of. And the word rid yourselves in Greek is usually used to talk about taking off clothing. So it's pretty awkward to walk around with clothes on halfway or getting changed halfway. So with this list, we've really got to get rid of these things completely. And note that each of these actions on this list is about something that destroys community. It separates God's people. So malice is a desire to harm others. Deceit is deliberately misleading others. Hypocrisy is good acts motivated by selfish desire instead of serving others. Envy is looking for what others have. And slander is talking down other people. Usually after this kind of list, we'd expect a contrasting list of putting different stuff on but this time we're left with one action and it's in verse 2 it says like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that you can grow up in your salvation growth is not possible without food a baby grows by getting fed and drinking milk last year at Mops uh, I had a bottle of milk in my hand and I had to feed a baby for the first time And I was just sitting there watching this little kid just full-on smash a bottle of milk right in front of me. Spiritual growth is not possible without spiritual food. The Greek word here for spiritual comes from the root word logos, which means word. So just as a baby craves, wants, and smashes down milk, just 
as when we have a food or coffee craving, we long for, we wait for, and we want it so much. Peter says that we're to crave to be fed by God's word so that we grow. We're to want to learn more about God and to grow to be like Jesus. And as God's community, this is something that makes us very different from those around us. And this is one thing that really defines us as Christians. God never says that once we're saved, then come to Christ. It's all good. Kick up your feet, relax, and do nothing. God wants us to live for Him. He wants us to grow with Him, or like Peter says, to grow in our salvation. I've been reading a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And one of the main points uh, I've been reading is the way that we grow in Christ is by being continually reminded of what Jesus has done for us. Letting the gospel transform us to be like Jesus. Learning from God's word and hearing about the gospel should never become old and boring news. About seven years ago, I was involved in a pretty serious meeting for a church group. And I walked away from that meeting feeling very saddened and disappointed. I can still remember the meeting and how I felt so clearly. Basically, the message I got was, learning about God, not important. All we want to do is have fun. I mean, are you serious in a church and saying that learning about God is not important? Don't get me wrong, having fun is good, but it's not what identifies us as God's people. Our goal isn't to have fun. Hopefully it's fun on the way. But God calls us to become transformed and passionate followers of Jesus and to see those around us do the same. And this is what the church, its ministries, and its people should all be aiming for. And this is what identifies us as God's people. God's people are growing in the gospel. They're growing in Jesus, growing in God's word. Do you value and crave spiritual growth? Do we as a church crave hearing about Jesus? I find that it's easy to agree with growing in God's word but it's harder to practically say yes and grab those learning opportunities and growing opportunities we often prefer to laze around and do something fun over learning about God in the last few years the church has put on Kairos courses, evangelism workshops and many other different growth opportunities there's around six, seven hundred people in this church and over 300 members. There's been maybe five SDBCs that have gone through Kairos in the past two years. If I remember correctly, the evangelism workshops were cancelled because of a lack of attendance. Does this show that we're craving gospel growth? Maybe this is something that we as individuals and as a church need to ask Jesus to change our attitude. God's people are craving growth in the gospel. If you're growing, then how are you growing in God's word? If someone asked you this, how would you answer them? It's a good question to ask someone after the service.
The third way to spot God's people is that they're serving in a Christian community. They're actively part of a body of believers. I have a few friends who say that they're Christians, but they rarely attend church and don't serve at all. I know people who come to church week after week, but treat the church like a hotel or a resort. I don't know if this is you or not, but they come in, they get fed, they get pampered, and then they go home, Sunday after Sunday. They have no intention to serve others or to be involved at all. Are they really identifying themselves as part of God's people? Verse 4 and 5 say that as we come to Jesus, we're being built into a spiritual house or a royal priesthood that is offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Note that it says that we're being built into God's house. It's not us that does the building. God builds us into a community of believers. It's through God's grace that he builds us as individuals and into a body of believers. He's building us to be like Jesus, to be like living stones, as it says. The role of this house, or this priesthood, is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. In other words, to serve God with all we have. This is how someone becomes like Jesus. God transforms us as we serve him. The role of the priest in the Old Testament was to work and to keep the temple and to keep the sacrifices. It's a role of sacrificially serving God. In light of Jesus, our role as God's people is to serve God, to offer ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice to Him. Romans 12 verse 1 It's not that we're serving or offering ourselves to be saved. We're serving and offering ourselves because Jesus has saved us. And this is the third way that we can spot God's people today. God's people will be serving in their local church or community. So how are you serving in God's community? Are you involved with God's work here? Is SDBC God's house or a holiday resort for you? Many of us respond to this by saying, there's no place for me to serve. But there's so many ways for anyone to get involved. If you read the bulletin or you ask any leader, there's always ways and places to serve. You don't need to be an expert to serve. It all flows from a heart wanting to serve God's people and offering yourself sacrificially to God. He can spot God's people by those who are serving his people in his community. As we get to the fourth point, can you remember the last time you've heard something that was worth telling others? About three years ago, I was visiting a good friend in Sydney and one night he goes, let's go to get some hurricanes. I didn't know what he was talking about, but I was like, Yep, okay, sounds good. Let me tell you, Hurricanes sells the best ribs I've ever had in my life. I'm not talking about those teeny tiny pork ribs that are mostly bone and a bit of meat. 
I'm talking about massive rack of ribs, this big, this wide, meat falling off the rib, draped in American barbecue sauce. Best thing ever. Now every time when I hear someone who's going to Sydney, I always tell them, you got to go to Hurricanes. There's one in the harbour, there's one at Bondi, 20% off if you go takeaway. It's the best ribs ever. What's something that you've heard that's worth telling others about? Let's read verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We are God's chosen. We have direct access to God. We're set apart. We're holy for God. Great truths about our identity as God's people. But the sentence doesn't stop there. There's an action or a function for us since we are God's people. We're God's people that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. One of our functions as God's people is to declare Jesus and what he's done in our lives. The saving message of Jesus is worth telling others about. Verse 10 says, You weren't anyone, but now you're part of God's people. You had not received mercy. You're facing death and judgment. But now you've received mercy. Isn't that something that's worth telling others about? It's what God calls us to do in these last verses. Declare praises of Jesus who has saved us. And this is the final way from this passage to spot God's people in a hostile world. So how are you declaring Jesus and how he saved you to others? Is that something that we do or we do well as a church? I was thinking through the week and wondering if we asked all the families living around our church property, if they've heard us declare Jesus to them, would they say yes? Have we actually presented the gospel to those around us? Or do we just give them notices saying sorry for the loud noises that we make every week? If we asked our neighbours, our workmates, our friends, if they've heard you declare Jesus to them, what would they say? I've been living in Runcorn for about a year, and I have pretty nice neighbours. They say hi, and I say hi. I've been really challenged to ask myself this week, am I declaring Jesus to them? Not just to say that I go to church, that I'm a, a Christian, actually telling them why it's worth following Jesus. Telling them my testimony, how Jesus has worked in my life and saved me. That's something that we'll all say on paper is worth sharing. But in reality, is this something that we practice? I see my neighbours every week, sometimes almost every day. Opportunities and opportunities to declare Jesus. Where are those moments for you? God wants us to declare the praises of Jesus to those around us. How are you declaring Jesus in your life? How are we declaring Jesus as a church? So just to wrap up this passage tonight, the big question is, 
how to identify God's people in a hostile world. There's four points from this passage. Firstly, Jesus is central to God's people. Jesus is the most important. Second, God's people are craving growth in the gospel. They want to grow in God's word. Thirdly, God's people are serving in a Christian community. They're serving in the local church. And finally, God's people are declaring Jesus to others. They're telling others about the saving message of Jesus. So as we finish off tonight, which one of you, which one of these do you need to focus on the most? God has chosen you to be part of his people, God's special possession. So let's be his people. Let's live our lives for Jesus in the world that he's placed us in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for letting us to be called your people. We thank you that you've chosen us, that we're your special possession, and that you've set us apart to be your people for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you'll help us all, as individuals and as a church, to be your people. Help us to put Jesus where he belongs in our lives. Help us to crave growth in the gospel, in your word. Help us to want to learn more about you. Help us to serve your church, in your kingdom, wherever you've put us in. And help us to declare Jesus to the world, to those around us, to everyone that you've put us in contact with. Heavenly Father, and I pray that you'll remind us daily of Jesus Christ, where our hope is found. He's our cornerstone, our solid rock. That through his blood, we can be called your people, your special possession. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, let's stand together.